0: Well, we are going to open God's Word together now, so if you have a Bible with you today, I do want to invite you to open it to John chapter 2. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and while you are turning there, let me just tell you that I like uh, stories about entrepreneurs and business founders. I like listening to stories from people who have built things. I like hearing about what they did right, maybe what they did wrong, what they would do differently if they could sort of do it all over again. And one of the stories that I have found fascinating over the years is the story of Howard Schultz. Uh, Howard Schultz was the founder and the executive chairman of the Starbucks Coffee Company. Uh, When you look at its growth from a single coffee shop in Seattle to the international powerhouse that it is today, there are a host of lessons to be learned around marketing and sort of uh, customer service, all sorts of things like that. But the part of the Howard Schultz story that I find most fascinating, I mean, apart from the fact that he foolishly sold the Seattle Supersonics, but apart from that part of the story, the thing that I find most fascinating is that he actually retired from the company in 2001 and then came back in 2008. So what was it that lured him out of his retirement? Well, that story's been told in lots of different places, but in 2007, he wrote what has become a famous memo to the Starbucks board of directors, essentially saying that the company had lost its way and forgotten why it existed. Growth had become the strategy of the company, and the experience that had defined the essence of the company was now being compromised by efficiency. The company had become fixated on growth and expansion to the point that their product was being diluted. He said he began going into the stores not being able to recognize what he had built. The tipping point came when Starbucks rolled out a new breakfast sandwich, some type of grilled cheese breakfast sandwich, and he said he walked into a Starbucks one morning and the odor from the sandwich was contaminating the aroma of coffee. He said Starbucks stores were starting to smell like burnt cheese instead of like coffee. His bottom-line assessment was that the Starbucks coffee company had forgotten how to make quality coffee. So he returned. As CEO, he made some dramatic changes. They immediately closed 900 stores. They had never had to close a single Starbucks before that moment. Then on February 26, 2008, they closed every one of their stores, at least in the U.S., for a day of retraining. Some 135,000 baristas received basic training in how to make a cup of espresso. That action cost the company tens of millions of dollars in sales that day, but it also probably saved the company. And the reason I share that story is not because there are some good business lessons in it, But because if you take that story about Howard Schultz walking into a Starbucks coffee shop and not recognizing what it was that he was seeing, and you multiply that story by infinity, then you get a sense of how Jesus felt when he walked into the temple in the passage we're going to read today. John chapter 2, we're going to begin at verse 13, and we're going to go down to the end of the chapter. And it says this, The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered him, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it, raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, this passage is actually a little bit startling when you first read it. John chapter 2 doesn't present us with the picture of Jesus meek and mild. Here he's making a whip of cords. He's driving out the money changers and the merchants. He's flipping over their tables. It's a different picture of Jesus. Now, there's a a memorable scene in one of C.S. Lewis's Books. One of his Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Lucy and Edmund are engaged in their adventure when they come to a large grassy expanse. The sensuous green of the grass expands into the blue horizon except for a white spot in the middle of the green expanse. As Edmund and Lucy look at the spot, they have trouble making out exactly what it is and being adventurous, they travel across the grass until the white spot comes into view. It's a lamb. The lamb, white and pure, is cooking breakfast. And the lamb gives Edmund and Lucy the most delicious breakfast they've ever had. The children converse with the lamb. They want to know if he knows how to get to the land of Aslan, heaven. And as the lamb begins to explain the way, a marvelous thing happens. Lewis describes it like this. His snowy white flushed into tawny gold, and his size changed, and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. Now, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, then you know that the great lion Aslan represented Jesus. And Lewis was illustrating one of the underestimated truths of our faith, namely that Jesus is both lamb and lion. All through chapter 1, we've been hearing that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 2 reminds us that Jesus is also the Lion. We sang it this morning. Our God is the Lion, the Lion of Judah. He's roaring with power. He's fighting our battles, and every knee will bow before Him. Our God is the Lamb. The lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. His blood breaks the chains and every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. We need to remember both of those things. We need to remember that Jesus is both lion and lamb. Now we talk a lot about the lamb part. We talk about Jesus being the one who bore the weight of our sins. The sacrificial lamb for us. But what about this lion part? I mean, what about Jesus making a whip of cords, chasing out the money changers and the merchants, dumping out their coins, flipping over their tables? Was this a one-off? Did Jesus have a short fuse? Did he just kind of go rage monster at the slightest provocation? Now, he didn't. But I think it's important to remind ourselves that Jesus demonstrated righteous anger on a number of occasions. Mark chapter 5 records one of those incidents. There it says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful? On the Sabbath, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And then it says, And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to, them, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus displayed righteous anger in a way that was both tangible and visible. On another occasion... Jesus was informed that King Herod was seeking to kill him. Listen to Jesus' response. And he said to them, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. Look, I'm not sure you would call that a diplomatic response about a political figure. Jesus is often shown in the Gospels to be welcoming of children. He often speaks in favorable terms about them, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. But listen to what he says about those who might do children harm or lead them astray. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And you will know that Jesus used some of his strongest language when he was speaking about hypocritical religious leaders. Most of Matthew chapter 23 is a series of indictments against the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. Here's a sampling. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness, so you also appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Or later in that chapter, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? So, look, there is a place for righteous anger or righteous indignation. There is a place for calling evil evil and taking action to rectify it. And that's what Jesus does here in John chapter 2. So, let's look at what it was that led Jesus to taking such dramatic action in the temple that day. And I want to walk through this passage by making note of three truths. The first one is that Jesus rejects false religion. So what was it that made Jesus so mad? Well, I want to suggest three reasons for Jesus' outrage here. The first one is simply commercialization. right? The temple, a place for worshiping God, had become a business. In much the same way that Howard Schultz came into Starbucks and said, I don't recognize what I'm seeing, Jesus came into the temple that day and said, I don't know what I'm seeing here. But it's not what the temple was designed for. He sees all the financial transactions taking place. He hears the squawking of the animals, and he knows that none of it has anything to do with worship of God. Now, there is a sense in which the the money changers and the merchants were performing a legitimate and even helpful service. John tells us that this event took place during the time of Passover. This was one of the major festivals on Israel's calendar. Pilgrims would travel many miles from all over Israel to come to Jerusalem. And being able to purchase a sacrificial animal in Jerusalem rather than having to drag it with you across the country would have made things easier. Now, there were actually two types of merchants who had set up shop in the temple courts. The first were the money changers or the currency converters. Everyone in Israel was required to pay a half shekel temple tax. But that tax had to be paid in Tyrian silver, a pure form of silver. So you could not pay the temple tax with a coin that had a pagan image on it, for instance. That was the Roman currency. You couldn't use that. You had to convert that to a pure form of currency. And so these money changers were there. They were happy to provide that service for you. Then the second type of merchants were those who were selling sacrificial animals. An important part of the festival was offering, the offering of animals as a sacrifice of, to God. And again, it was obviously more convenient to purchase an animal there than to take it with you or to transport it. So you can see why these types of businesses existed. So if these were legitimate businesses that provided a valuable service, what exactly was the problem? Well, part of the problem might have simply been the location of the merchants. They were conducting business inside the temple grounds instead of in close proximity to the temple where most of the merchants would have sold their wares on the Mount of Olives. But Maybe the problem was just that the temple had become fixated on generating revenue Instead of fixated on prayer, I mean, there's something to that. What Jesus says is, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Even this most basic problem of commercialization is important for us to understand. The temple existed for the worship of God, not the buying and selling of goods. Regardless of how helpful those things might have been. So what does that mean for us today? I mean, is it okay for a church to have a bookstore or a coffee shop? I actually don't think that's the parallel. But I do think we see a lot of commercialization in the church today. Now, I know a number of you have been listening to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. If you have, then you know that at some point it moved from being about proclaiming Jesus to a lost city, to building a brand. But even apart from that example, there are lots of examples of churches peddling religious goods and services instead of focusing on God's glory. It's the problem of commercialization. We just kind of commodify everything. Here, you can buy this. This will solve your problems. So that's one problem. A second problem was exploitation. There's an indication here that the merchants who set up shop in the temple were selling their goods at at an exorbitant cost. Now, if you've ever been to a sporting event or to a concert, then you know that the price you pay for a hot dog inside the stadium is a lot more than what you pay outside the stadium, right? Or if you've ever, ever been to a movie and, you know, you've tried to buy like popcorn and a pop, right? I mean, oh, I can get the combo for just $17. What a great deal. That's a little bit what was taking place inside the temple. It's like, oh, yes, you had to travel all this way. You know what? We've got a great deal for you here, and we're making a massive profit on it. Again, that might be a good way for a baseball team or a movie theater to generate extra revenue. It's not a good practice for a place of worship. Now, the animals that are mentioned here are the sheep, the oxen, and the pigeon. And John actually highlights, in verse 16, he says, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. So why does he highlight the pigeons? Well, the customary animal to bring at sacrifice was, at Passover especially, was a lamb, a lamb without blemish. But if you could not afford a lamb and many households could not, there was a provision in the law for you to offer pigeons instead. We actually read about this in several occasions in the book of Leviticus. Here's one example. It says, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves, or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. And so the inference here is that these merchants were were selling the required animals at an exorbitant cost, and especially taking advantage of the poor. Now, if all of this sounds foreign to your ears, and, you know, it's just something that happened 2,000 years ago, well, it shouldn't. It's happened more recently. More recently, as in 500 years ago, this was one of the issues that brought about the Protestant Reformation. In an effort to pay for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica, the Roman Catholic Church started selling indulgences. Now, an indulgence was a certificate that you could purchase which would guarantee that your time in purgatory would be reduced and remitted by up to 1,902,202 years and 270 days. You had enough money, that's what you could purchase. The more money you paid, the less time you or your loved ones would have to spend in purgatory. Johann Tetzel, who was sort of the marketing guru for the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s, came up with a slogan that ran along the lines of As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Right? That's exploitation. I'm going to sell you salvation. Even more recently, we could think about the fact that the primary place that what is known as the, pri- the prosperity gospel has flourished is actually in the poorest countries. Here's what one African theologian had to say about the most popular type of preaching you hear on his continent. He said, Everywhere, especially on radio and television, almost all you hear is this message about how God in Christ wants us to be physically healthy and materially prosperous. You hardly ever hear sermons about sin and repentance. So salvation has now become deliverance from sickness and poverty. It's temporal rather than eternal. And the message that gets peddled to the poor is, look, God doesn't want you to be poor. If you just have enough faith, you will be wealthy. And one of the ways you can show you have enough faith is by sending some of what little money you do have to these various ministries. You just need to plant a financial seed and God will make it grow. And the reality in places like Africa and Latin America is that all this prosperity preaching hasn't hasn't lessened the poverty but made it worse. That's religious exploitation and that is the kind of thing that makes Jesus angry. So commercialization, exploitation, and, and we could categorize the third problem under the heading exclusion. A further issue with what the money changers were doing had to do with their specific location inside the temple precinct. actually meant to send Andy a picture of Herod's temple so you could see it. But at the very center of the temple was what was known as the Holy place, or the Holy of Holies, and in that very center, the only person who could ever go in there was the High Priest of Israel, and he could only go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement. When you moved out from the Holy of Holies, you then had the Court of the Priests, and as the name suggests, the only people who were fit to go in there were priests, those who had been set apart for God's service. And then you went out from there, and you had the Court of Israel. This is where the Israelites could gather. This is where they could worship God. And then if you went out there to the, to the outer courts, that was the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place the Gentiles could go to worship God. And guess where the money changers and merchants set up their shop? In the court of the Gentiles. So those who were already on the periphery were being pushed out further. Now, when you read Mark's account of Jesus cleansing the temple, Mark records Jesus as saying this, and he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? And when Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 56 says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps Sabbath and does not profane it and hold fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples." So if the ultimate goal of the temple was not just a place for the Israelites to worship, but a house of prayer for all peoples, you can see how this buying and selling in the court of the Gentiles was preventing that from happening. The temple was supposed to be part of the strategy of fulfilling the worldwide mission of God. And when the church fails to take that seriously and instead becomes a country club, Jesus gets angry. Here's how the Apostle James described one way we can exclude people in our worship gatherings. He said, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in clo- shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? See, this idea of exclusion is a big deal. It's not to be practiced in the church. John Stott once shared the story of an experience he had while serving as a traveling teacher. He said this, as an illustration, let me mention visiting the huge central square of the capital city of a Latin American republic. In the middle was the statue of the national hero who had rescued the country at the beginning of the last century from the Spanish conquistadors. On one side of the square... Or one side of the square was entirely occupied by the Roman Catholic cathedral. I tried to get in, but it was closed. On the steps leading up to its main door, however, were three human beings. A drunk who had vomited copiously, a blind beggar selling matches, and a prostitute who was offering herself to a passerby. A drunk, a beggar, and a prostitute, three symbols of human tragedy... And behind them, a locked cathedral, which seemed to be saying, keep out, we don't want you. You know, part of what made the the church, the early church in the first century grow so rapidly was its radical inclusiveness. So the Apostle Paul would say, in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor, nor free, there's no male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So whatever distinctions might exist outside the church those things cease to be important inside the church. Now as a contemporary issue the idea that some churches are adopting with regard to vaccine passports I think are antithetical to the very nature of the gospel. The idea that someone would be excluded from participation in the body of Christ because of their their vaccine status is, or at least ought to be, scandalous. It's hard to square that with the message of the one who touched lepers, welcomed prostitutes, and hung out with sinners and tax collectors. Now, you can disagree with me on that. But practicing our religion in such a way that it excludes people on the basis of any extra-biblical criteria, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, or anything else... Something we shouldn't have any part of. Again, you can disagree with me. I'll read your emails tomorrow. I don't say that in a a flippant way. Literally, I love to dialogue. So commercialization, exploitation, exclusion. Second thing we see in this passage is that Jesus replaces the temple. Now Jesus cared about what was taking place in the temple. But the aim of this act was not merely reforming temple practices. The religious authorities come to him and they, they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, in one sense, I think we can all understand the question, what authority does Jesus have to do what he is doing? Now, we can understand the question, but the way they approach this, approach this entire situation reveals something about the state of their hearts. They seem to care far more about following proper protocols than they do about pure worship. Their concern is not the commercialization of the temple or the exploitation of the people or the exclusion of the Gentiles. Their concern was what gave Jesus the right to do this. Now, in fact, Jesus had already answered their question when he cleansed the temple. What he says specifically in verse 16 is, and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of prayer. See, the temple did not belong to the religious leaders of the first century. The temple belonged to God. Jesus refers to it as his father's house. And as God's son, he did have the authority to cleanse the temple. But in direct answer to their question, Jesus says this in verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, it goes on to, to clarify there. that The temple Jesus is talking about is the temple of his own body, which would be raised up at the resurrection on the third day. These verses actually speak to a couple of different things. They do point to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He was not raised as sort of a disembodied spirit. But more than that, what Jesus is saying here is that he is the replacement for the temple. In order to really understand this, we need to remember just how significant the temple was in Jewish religion. Regardless of where you lived in Israel, you would dutifully make your way to the temple at least once a year for Passover. And if you were devout in any way, you would make your way there numerous times during the year. Because you would go, this was the place where you could be made right with God through a sacrifice. And notice, Jesus doesn't just show us a better way to practice our religious rituals at the temple. He replaces the need for the temple altogether. Other New Testament writers express this same truth in different ways. As Matthew recounts the events of Jesus' crucifixion, he includes a detail that none of the other gospel writers include. And he says this, And behold... The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The spontaneous tearing of the huge curtain of the temple from top to bottom at the moment Jesus died on the cross was symbolic of the fact that the temple and all of its sacrifices were no longer needed. The writer of Hebrews expresses this same truth like this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So how are we made right with God? Well, it's not by going to the temple and offering sacrifices. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all. So we learn that Jesus rejects false religion. We learn that he replaces the temple. Final thing we discover in this passage is that Jesus requires more than shallow professions of faith. This chapter actually takes an interesting turn in verses 23 to 25. Verse 23 says Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was. Doing. I mean, we read that and we think, well, that's the goal, right? I mean, he's doing these signs, people are putting their faith in him, job well done. Not quite, though. Listen now to verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what these verses are telling us is that there is a kind of spurious faith. That is to say, there are people who have what looks like a moment of true faith, or a moment of belief. Maybe they're moved by emotion in the midst of a religious gathering or service, or maybe it's a sign that they saw. But for his part, Jesus seems ambivalent about the kind of faith that, that is inspired by signs alone. There were several back and forths about this between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. On one occasion, it says, then some of the Pharisees or some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right? Just show us a sign, then we'll believe. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What Jesus is saying is, look, me simply, you know, performing a miracle at your demand is not going to actually produce genuine faith in you. The ultimate sign that I will give is my death and resurrection. That's what he's saying here. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And if you cannot believe in that, you simply will not believe. So he rejects this kind of shallow profession of faith. And we know this from elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord... Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He requires more than a shallow profession of faith. It's not enough just to say, Lord, Lord. There needs to be a genuine commitment and trust in him. So as we think about this passage, we think about Jesus' reaction when he comes into the temple, and we think about our modern day. We, we ought to think in terms of how it is that we can please God, how it is that we can display genuine faith and trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we do give you thanks for your goodness to us. We thank you for the opportunity we've had today to reflect on this event and what Jesus did and what motivated him to do it, and Lord, we pray now that you would help us to be faithful to you. You would help us to make the right kind of response, regardless of what we might be facing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.